Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. After a year of brutal drought this winter, NOAA is predicting warmer temperatures in much of the country and below normal precipitation. Drought deepens across the U.S., disrupting crops and increasing fire risks. U.N. warns emissions are rising and nations must do more to avoid catastrophe. Plus, this bus symbolizes so much about our collective investment in our future. Biden administration kicks off transition to all electric school buses. The wheels on the bus go round and round in those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The UK's next prime minister will be former Chancellor Rishi Sunak, who will be Britain's first leader of South Asian descent, its first Hindu prime minister, and the nation's first leader of color. Which means, which means, Britons will be able to run their entire power grid off the turbines connected to Queen Victoria spinning in her grave. We'll take any innovation we can get. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we're starting off winter with some not good news from NOAA? Nope, not good at all. Drought is deepening across large swaths of the U.S., threatening parts of the nation's food supply and hydroelectric power, killing crops and increasing fire risks. That's according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The federal U.S. Drought Monitor reports that more than 80% of the country is experiencing at least abnormally dry conditions, the highest percentage since the drought monitor launched in 2000. Extreme drought is expanding in the Midwest, triggering federal cash assistance programs for farmers and livestock ranchers in hard-hit areas. On the Mississippi River, record low water level is dramatically curtailing barges, transporting crops, steel, oil, and other commodities, raising shipping costs by 300 percent. The only real solution is waiting for the rain to return, according to Wall Street Journal reporter Cameron McWhorter. There's hope that beginning around December, rain will start to fall in the Ohio River Valley to an extent where it'll start to bring that water back down to the Mississippi and things will get better. If not, we're all in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Keep hope alive. As the world gears up for the next round of U.N. climate talks in Egypt in a few weeks, the annual U.N. Emissions Gap Report in advance of the conference finds, again, that nations' current voluntary emissions reductions and climate adaptation pledges are not enough to keep temperatures from rising above the 1.5 degrees Celsius target in the Paris Climate Agreement. That is the threshold for preventing catastrophic impacts for people and nature. Current pledges put humanity on track to hit 2.5 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of this century, with the report warning that countries need to cut annual emissions by 40 percent by 2030. A second report by the World Meteorological Organization finds emissions of three potent climate warming gases, carbon monoxide, methane, and nitrous oxide, all reached record concentrations in the atmosphere last year. A third report from UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund, warns that children will be increasingly exposed to extreme heat events. Mm. Today, one in four children experience extreme heat waves, but by 2050, that's within 30 years, 
All children will be exposed to more frequent extreme heat waves. Man, we suck at this. The report calls for more international funding to help vulnerable communities and people adapt and prepare. Yes, please. Here in the U.S., the Fish and Wildlife Service this week granted federal endangered species protection to iconic emperor penguins, the world's largest penguin species. The species is in danger of extinction in coming decades Mm. due to man-made global warming, melting sea ice, and destabilizing the habitat. But there is some good news. Thank you. Australia is building the world's largest battery, 850 megawatts, to replace a massive polluting coal-fired power plant. Now, actually, it's a bunch. It's a series of batteries. It's not like one big, great, big, (laughs) enormous AA battery, right? That is true. Okay. That would be one gigantic Energizer bunny. Wouldn't it? (laughs) Finally, Vice President Kamala Harris was in Seattle on Wednesday to roll out the first installment of funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law to help help school districts replace polluting diesel-fueled school buses. The first billion dollars in grants will pay for 2,500 all-electric buses in 400 school districts across all 50 states, with billions more to come. High school junior Audrey Gamerick, who introduced Vice President Harris, called on adults to do more. Transitioning from fossil fuel buses to clean energy is a step in the right direction towards ensuring a prosperous future for younger generations. But it cannot be our last. Sustainable practices such as the Clean School Bus Program in American schools set a standard of climate-centered action to be mirrored throughout society. Cool. Are they going to put seatbelts on them this time? That's a good question. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. God knows. I love that bus. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. Officials in Arizona are now stepping up security after describing instances in which vigilantes, their word, were seen loitering around ballot boxes. A voter reported the people took pictures of them and their license plate. New threats of political violence and voter intimidation in this year's midterms. As we head into the midterms, we are witnessing efforts around the country at voter intimidation and suppression. Anti-democratic candidates are already saying they will not concede if they don't win. And Christian nationalists are poised to impose their theocratic vision upon the majority of Americans. Fortunately, Americans from a constellation of faith traditions and no faith traditions, as well as different political backgrounds, are pushing back and defending our democracy. We will be speaking to one of the brightest lights among this group, Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner, who has long provided inspiring leadership in congregations across the country as well as in the halls of Congress. She is the CEO of the Skinner Leadership Institute, and she will be with us to discuss the work she is doing to help save our democracy. We are in a spiritual battle, and they're using these weaponized terms now, just like they use the term conspiracy theory and all these other terms, you know, this new one, Christian nationalist. Faith-associated groups are engaged in the upcoming elections on all sides, and as deeply as in any time in recent memory. We have Christian nationalists with a van touring around baptizing people. 
while they are being followed by an interfaith group saying no thank you. Religion News Service national reporter Jack Jenkins is an astute observer of this kind of activism, and he'll be back with us to share some of what he's been reporting on in this midterm election. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on iTunes and all the other podcast platforms. Each week, I'm in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the country. You won't want to miss it. Please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join me in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner is president of the Skinner Leadership Institute, a past executive director of the Black Congressional Caucus. She founded the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation Prayer Breakfast with her late husband, Tom Skinner. Dr. Williams Skinner is co-convener of the National African American Clergy Network and, in the 2022 election cycle, is coordinating the Faiths United to Save Democracy Voter Justice Campaign. Dr. William Skinner, thank you so much for being with us on State of Belief Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I want to start uh, at whatever beginning you want to start with, but I'm very interested in when you became aware of the intersection between your work on social justice and religion. Like, how did that come together for you? When was the first time you were aware of how those things intersected in a way that resonated with you? Well, it's just a weird connection in every way. I I grew up with a praying mother, but I was an agnostic uh, all through college and uh, into my early adulthood, even to the time of working on Capitol Hill. So social justice was in my DNA. And I'd go with my mother to to pass out, you know, literature to people to help serve in the soup kitchen, even though we were very poor and whatever. But so I always had a sense that uh, that the best way to be fully human is to help others who are in need. Okay, so that was never an issue. But the intersection uh, probably came uh, when I met Tom Skinner and heard for the first time in 1979 when he spoke in Washington, D.C. about Jesus. I never heard about a personal relationship with Jesus because I left church when I was 11 and a half, just you know, on a resignation from my church from my mother in a letter written to her at 11 and a half. So I never came back until I met Tom and, and sat in the back just in case something stupid was said, I could just slip right out. So I promised to be there, <laughs> not to stay. <laughs> so, but I never heard someone so powerfully connect Jesus to the those who are left on the side of the road, those who have no voice, those who have little hope, those who are trounced on. I never heard that. I know I'd worked with the Black Power Movement. I know I'd worked with people, you know, serving the poor. I know I'd protested against all kinds of, of injustices. It never occurred to me that I had ever heard that connection. I thought of church as a place for the the, the safe to be safer. <laughs> 
talk to me a little bit about where you are now with um, the work you're doing. I can imagine someone who's been in politics for as long as you have and and in, in justice movements, not politics. I don't want to relegate you to one area, but you must be Perplex is the nicest word I can think of uh, with what we're facing right now in this country. Can you talk a little bit about where you where do you see us? Like how, what's happening is I think what a lot of us are asking. What is happening right now? And then I want to talk about some of the ways you've been responding to that. Yeah, we are a nation that hasn't changed a lot from our beginning. Um, there have been phases and seasons. You know, remember the nation was founded on nearly annihilating Native Americans, enslaving Blacks, and being really uh, unjust to people of color in general. And we founded, you know, as I would say, as an American, a great nation. But it did not include non-whites, all right, in that founding principle. I don't think that's changed. I think the fact that we're having a problem with people voting who don't look like us is not inconsistent. The fact that white Christian nationalism is the most dangerous factor in America now, you know, the Justice Department is looking at white Christian nationalism the way we used to look at bin Laden and right. and, and people who were attacking us from abroad, but we're being attacked from within. Add to that the pandemic that we've been through where people have been shut apart from one another. So you've had the, you didn't have a change from um, the KKK. You just had new messengers, new evangelists for white Christian nationalism and white supremacy. Trump is not new. He is another effective voice for hate. Okay. All right. So nothing has changed, Paul. What has happened is that we see for the first time on the ballot democracy. See, but democracy mm. was a given growing up. We always thought, you know, maybe Russia would expire. Maybe Great Britain would not be great. You know, another country would, would, would pass away the way Rome did, but not America and its core, its it's uh, the spirit of law and order, the sense of that they're a nation of laws, right? That's on the ballot. What's on the ballot yeah. is, is what post-democracy might look like when you have state legislatures that can overturn the elected will of the people. When yeah. you have uh, white Americans now, 52% of the population when they were 85%, in, in 1960 saying, oh, we're losing our nation and now we have to do underhand, illegal, mischievous, deceptive things to maintain white minority rulership. That's the weakening of American democracy. And that's the danger of our nation. Nothing has changed. The main thing is that we've gone through several pandemics and I'm gonna add, the pandemic of democracy, and a, a, a health, an economic, a racial pandemic, and now the fourth pandemic, the pandemic of a democracy on the ropes. I think you're you're hitting it completely 
Um, and I think it it needs to be said because this is not business as usual. I, I, I think for the first time in my life, and then I have a 94-year-old father who's who just, I was like, have you ever seen, have you ever seen anything like this? He was like, never. It never felt like this. It never felt like democracy was truly imperiled in the same way. So I want to get to some of what you have been doing because you are, uh, I think as we've already surmised, uh, listeners who maybe didn't know you before, they know now uh, that you are not someone to sit idly by. And so one of the things that you have started, which is, you know, speaks directly into that is a group called Faiths United to Save Democracy. Um, and you've had some great partners in that, but I, yeah. I just have spent some time on that website. I urge listeners to go to that website and really spend some time because it is incredible in its rich resources, but also stating plain what we're facing. But talk to me a little bit about like, how did that get started? How did you say, okay, this is what we need to do right now. This is a 2022 yes, urgent yes. alarm. Well, in prior elections, we worked primarily that is Skinner Leadership Institute, the organization I had and the National African-American Clergy Network of denomination leaders representing some 15 to 20 million members, right? We worked on black voter protection, outreach, mobilization and the like, but we discovered that 34 million uh, disabled Americans, when you take away the drop boxes are disenfranchised. When you have no wheelchairs in poor white neighborhoods and their elderly people, they're disenfranchised. When you have synagogues and mosques being burned down, and I'm a Christian, that's a problem for those who follow Jesus and his mandate to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we said that we needed to have a much bigger tent. And so Faith United to Save Democracy is nonpartisan, multi-faith, race, and generation. And is focused on simply protecting the right to say what John Lewis called a precious, almost sacred right to vote. That's what it is. And we're in 10 states. If people will go to turnoutsunday, that's one word, dot com, turnoutsunday.com, you'll see the states. Um, we have almost 700 poll chaplains that we have uh, organized today. Could you say a little bit what a poll chaplain is? A poll chaplain is a faith leader standing in the spirit of God for the vulnerable to say this person has a right to vote in Alabama, in Arizona, uh, in Texas, in North Carolina, in Ohio. And not only am I going to stand there in my sacred attire and say, you know, in the name of the God I serve, this person has a right and I'm gonna stand here and be protective of them, but I'm also gonna be connected to a hotline of lawyers. So if they have legitimate practical question, I'm also gonna help them. So we've done all the month of October of trainings. We had one last night of 200, probably more whites than blacks, uh, middle-class uh, white people who are saying, yes, I wanna be in a country that's inclusive. I wanna be in a country that protects all rights. And so I'm the yeah. most hopeful person today uh, other people might be depressed. I think you get depressed when you're not doing anything. I think oh, when you quote, you, quote, you watch preach, the news, preach. Yes. Watch yes. the news. Watch the news. And you sitting in there saying, yeah, our country's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not. People are looking for a way to be together. They're looking for the alternative. They know we are uh, we're slowly becoming 
not by anybody's machination, <laughs> a multiracial society. That's not against anybody. No. That is the nation, a richer nation that we are, we are becoming. So Faith United to Save Democracy, we've done voter education. We've been at this for since last June. And we have just helped people to see, look, this is your right. You need to protect it. It's not yeah. a given. It's not, right. it doesn't have to be here forever if you don't protect it. And so I'm thrilled with the young people, older people, people of all backgrounds who are learning to talk to one another. Amazingly, last night we had Christian Jews and Quakers as well as Imams on the and 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 Muslims on the line. We haven't quite learned how to say uh interfaith. We're not learned how to say there's a space for all of us. So there are more Christians in our coalition. They they think everybody's Christian. I'm reminding them we can't make this without make it without, and I know your your background is partly Jewish. We can't make it without all of our brothers and sisters. And I'm not applauding myself because we are barely at the iceberg of getting people to realize I need to understand my Asian brothers and sisters. They're not my mm. enemy. The mm. white whites are not my enemy. The, the enemy is the is hate. The mm. enemy is injustice. The enemy is a society where everyone does not matter. We're, we're, we're not all made in the image of God. That's the enemy that we should all be fighting. Yeah, I, I appreciate that so much. And I, I, I really want to underscore what you said, which is like, we can scroll Twitter, we can, we can just, you know, be be angry and angry. The when you get out there and you meet other people and you you collaborate on doing something positive, it, it is really, it is like coming, you know, sunshine after weeks of rain. You know, I mean, really, it is so yeah, good. very encouraging and, right now to see that in, in, in Arizona, for example. It would be heartbreaking if I could say this story without Paul Chaplin. But because we have Paul Chaplin, we're not afraid when we see people brandishing guns in Phoenix and other places. That is happening today, as you and I are speaking right now. But our poll chaplain had de-escalation training for an hour last night. They understand how to deal with conflict nonviolently. And so they're going in that spirit of peacekeeping, right? And so I believe that our nation is gonna be better when people make a decision between, you wanna be in a nation where only a few people have all citizenship rights and where the, the rest of people are, are stomped on, or do you wanna be in a nation where everybody's valued? Everybody mm. counts, everybody matters, everybody has a voice. And I believe we have that option before us in the name of our God. Well, and you know, the amazing thing is, is that that is so important that this is, there's a vision that we're offering, which is incredibly powerful and hopeful and inclusive it welcomes people of faith and people who have no faith people no who faith want to be who people who want to be together and yes. and i was talking we have affiliates of interfaith alliance across the country and i was saying like we have a great story which is we want to welcome everyone. We want to create a world where everyone, no one gets left behind. And this is just so, hearing what you're saying, first of all, the midterms will pass. We'll see what happens with that, you know, but is uh, Faith United to Save Democracy going to continue or of is this course. a one-off? Okay. It has because to continue I, 
it has to continue. It has to continue. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I want to encourage people who are listening, please go to turnoutsunday.com. Com? Yes, dot com. Dot com. Turnoutsunday.com. Sign up. Tell me about like what it takes to be a poll chaplain. I know there's lots okay, of ways so to get involved. So people do but... not have to be ordained. Um, no, they can be at any, you know, any faith tradition. Um, they don't have to be the pastor. They can be a Sunday school teacher. We don't care. There are people who just care about uh, protecting the vulnerable, right? Um, we we ask that they wear a sacred attire. That could be a stall. It could be a stole. It could be a collar. It could be whatever, but it's not required. They will have ID. We have a, a makeup uh, pole chaplain training on this coming Tuesday, six to seven on November first. We'll send out notices on that. It'll be posted on our website. All they have to do is sign up for the uh, if they want to go Alabama, Arizona, Georgia, Florida. Michigan, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, Wisconsin. That's a big part of the nation. That is right? a big part of the nation. So they and... have an opportunity to go to one of the cities in that state where the need is greatest. If you're middle class, do not sit in your middle class neighborhood because your vote is not obstructed, right? Middle class people like me, we have lawyers. We know how to protect ourselves. You don't want to go to a black middle class neighborhood. You want to, or a Hispanic middle. We have to go where people are, have the greatest need. It's usually poor and lower income. So mm-hmm. I'm asking people to get out of their comfort zone and go where they're assigned. It's only yeah. for three hours. It's not all day. Yeah. And we give them uh, a kit to take with them, a pole chaplain training kit. They take that. They have special numbers. We have a call number if they don't know their assignment. And we really have covered them. You're, you're well. together. Listen, and this is what I do want to say is that it may be that people are not didn't get a chance to to be with you this time, but there's a next time. And I have oh, a absolutely. feeling that there's. That that um, you're in ten states now. My guess is that there are many states who would love to have this because there's it's those are those are I I can see why those states were chosen, but this is needed everywhere. And so I just want to applaud everything you're doing. And and I just wonder like if you can send us out with like some good. You, you've already given us hope, and you've already given us something we can do. But let me let me ask you. You know that 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 tricky question, but in ten years, if you if you can imagine a future in ten years, what would our democracy look like? What would America, the United States, look like in ten years if we can really all take this moment of crisis? Because I think it is a crisis, and 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 go into it directly and do what needs to be done. What does America look like in ten years? So the word crisis, we know, has the opposite side, which is opportunity. I think we have the opportunity to get out of our comfort zone wherever we live and begin to connect with people outside of our comfort zone. All of us, I don't care if you live in an all-white community, if you live in an all-black community, you have a way of connecting in a comfortable way, right, through relationships you have uh, in your own city to say, where are people meeting across these borders? Then I can go and learn and and they can learn from me, right? I would see in America in 10 years where the intersection of race and religion means that we are in each other's lives. 
I want to be in America where people consciously decide to be connected to other people by recognizing we don't know how to do it. We're all learning it together. This is not about white guilt and, and black you know, anger. This is about us coming before God and saying, we all need to learn how to be better as being your children, your prized possession. And Lord, give us the space to do that. And it takes leadership for that. Okay, so I'm, I'm praying for leaders, those who are being in divisive now that they would learn that that will get them nowhere. I want more people sitting off the sideline. It's only 20% on either extreme. We want those in the middle, right? We want that 60% to start learning how to be together. That's the America that I'm cheering for. That's the America mm. I want to see. Mm. Mm. And full participation and people people coming together, learning. I love that. I think that the idea of a learning country, wouldn't that be lovely if we all recognize that we are a learning country? I think... Um, you know, one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite quotes and and phrases is "achieving our country," from James Baldwin, which is like we have to work together to achieve our country, but it won't achieve itself, and so we have to do we have to do it together. Yeah, you can't uh, download a country. <laughs> you can't download a country, and you can't swipe. You know, you can't swipe left or right. You, it, it's something we need to actually get into. So. Dr. William Skinner, I want to thank you so much for being with me today on State of Belief Radio and sharing yeah. your wisdom, sharing your hope, and sharing your way that everyone can get involved. Well, thank you so much. And your father uh, was a hero of my late husband's, and I learned a lot about your family from uh, Dr. Walter Rauschenbusch. Uh, thank you so much. That was my great grandfather. I he, great he was grandfather. In the, yeah, he was in the beginning of the 20th century. My father. Oh, OK. Well, your great grandfather was an amazing person. He, he was an amazing person. And my father was named after him, Walter Rauschenbusch. He was a law professor, a great man on his own. But I, I'm not that old. <laughs> oh, OK. I'm sorry. You, no, no, really, I'm just kidding. No, you you're, look you're great. Very, you look you're great. Very, I'm sorry. You're very nice to, to mention that. And, you know, one of the great honors of my life was um, um, when Representative John Lewis said something similar to me, and I, I, I felt like that it was just such a, a humbling, amazing moment. And I know that there, there's would be no greater praise for Walter Rauschenbusch that that he would contribute to the work that you're doing today. I think that would be his highest honor. So, thank you for all you're doing, and thank you for uh, being with us here today on State of Belief Radio. And appreciate it. Thank you for the invite. God bless you. We need to take another break. Up next, Religion News Service national reporter Jack Jenkins. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, 
How would most families and individuals fare financially with a single-payer Medicare for All system? Would they be paying more or less for healthcare than they're paying now? To find out, we spoke to James G. Kahn, a professor emeritus of health policy, epidemiology, and global health at the University of California, San Francisco. We reviewed 22 studies of the overall cost of single-payer all of them found that over time there would be savings, and almost all of them found that the savings would start in year one. But then that still leaves open the question, how would individual families do? That depends on how you design the tax structure. For example, we've just developed a household cost calculator that asks people what they currently spend on premiums, what their employers spend on premiums, and then what they spend on out-of-pocket costs. And then we ask what the family earns. And we use that to calculate the taxes that would be due. By designing that tax structure to be focused on people who earn more money, what we found so far is that at least 85% of people who complete this find that they save money. They pay less in these new taxes than they save with premiums and cost sharing. The full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wax wherever you find your podcast. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. One of the things I'm not seeing enough and hearing enough in the headlines, which I'm glad we're going to talk about today, um, are the wins that Democrats have achieved, especially wins for workers, right? These have been big wins and also not easy to get. I mean, Democrats, although they have a majority, it's a slim majority in both the House uh, and the Senate, but they've worked with President Biden and there have been major achievements that uh, definitely are pros and positives in the columns of favor for workers and favor uh, for the families of these workers. Um, First of all, why do you think, Kim, that they don't get as much attention in the headlines? Because, you know, and, and quite frankly, that a lot of the people running in these midterm elections uh, whether a first time out of the box or certainly those who are incumbents, you know, running for re-election, why aren't they saying, look at all we've done for workers and their families? Because these are definitely, uh, you know, uh, kitchen table issues, which uh, the polls show voters are most concerned about. Well, Leslie, I can't explain why everybody's not running on these issues, because frankly, I've been working in and around politics for the better part of 25 years now. In these last two years in particular, since President Biden you know, has taken office, I mean, the the volume of wins that Democrats have secured is like nothing that I've seen. And so workers' rights, you know, are very high on my list of things that, um, that you know, we're just seeing, you know, a tremendous amount of support from the administration. I think it's um, I think it's something that, you know, certainly within my union, that's what we're out there talking about, you know, and a lot of those things we're finding resonate with voters. But unfortunately, I think some of them just don't fit into that 30-second soundbite sometimes. So it takes a conversation to remind people where we're at. And I think oftentimes in our media, these issues get crowded out for whatever the sensational thing is at the moment. So, uh, you know, in my union, we talk about uh, things that are missing from the headlines and things that we share within our union that maybe you're just not going to hear about elsewhere. 
Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. Jack Jenkins is an award-winning national reporter at Religion News Service. A keen observer of the interplay between American religion and American politics. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thanks so much for having me. You have been writing about something that many people are talking about right now, which is Christian nationalism. You are perhaps the first reporter that I really watched uh, take this up. And so kudos to you and 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 all the work you've done in it. I'm going to ask you the... million, billion, trillion dollar question. How do you define Christian nationalism? <laughs> so I, I actually use a fairly broad definition, um, and I'll explain that in a second. The, the, my working definition is the um, those who believe that America was founded as a Christian nation, and more importantly, that it either has deviated from that Christian founding and needs to return to it, or that it just needs to remain a Christian nation. And I think that second part is even more important than the historical one, because it's kind of the the um, call to action for Christian nationalists. Right. And the reason I use that broad definition is that there's a bunch of Christian nationalisms underneath that broad definition. Say a little bit more about that. How, can you delineate any of the nationalisms that you're observing right now? Sure. I mean, you know, there are certainly some hardline extremist um, uh, positions. I should note that in the aftermath of January 6th, we've seen a lot of right-wing extremists actually kind of, you know, really take on Christian nationalism as a cause. Um, And they were actually some of the first to start using it as an an identity for themselves, identifying as Christian nationalists. Uh, These are people like Nick Fuentes, a white nationalist head of the group in America First, um, he has called for something that he describes, you know, Catholic Taliban rule. He actually has a a Catholic bent on his Christian nationalism. Andrew Torba, um, the head of the right wing social media website Gab, um, who's known for for you know sharing anti-Semitic messages and whatnot. You know, he's written a whole book on this topic, and you know, those kind of are more draconian. These different visions for Christian nationalism about you know the idea of really kind of pushing a specific kind of uh, rule on other people. Torba's is actually even Christian statism. He's actually willing to, um, he thinks it could work differently in different states, but it's still this idea that you would pass laws um, to champion a specific form of Christianity. Um, you also kind of have the iterations expressed by people like Doug Mastriano, the gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania. You know, that was a form of Christian nationalism that got really popular in the aftermath of January 6th among those um, some on the right that kind of fused anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown, anti-mask sentiment with Christian nationalism. That's actually how Doug Mastriano kind of got a following in that state. He's who was really involved in that movement um, last year and the year before. And it was through those networks that he kind of, you know, you lifted up this this version of Christian nationalism that simultaneously harkens back to older versions, like the, you know, the older religious right, their understanding of history from the 80s and 90s, and then adds to it this sort of um, kind of pushback against the government, kind of anti-government sentiment, while simultaneously wanting to put themselves in government um, to pass a different kinds of laws. Uh, so I wonder if, um, you know, if you can see other places where you see 
Christian nationalism as a really important part of the midterm elections. Where else can you see that showing up in your uh, in your work and your reporting? Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting about Mastriano is that he kind of, you know, he 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 has rejected the term Christian nationalism, at least he did the last time he was speaking to some mainstream media a year or so ago. Um, but, you know, he's kind of espousing this sort of idea, like he challenges the idea of a separation of church and state. He refers to it as a myth. And in a different interview, went at length saying he doesn't think it exists. Um, you know, we see that in uh, at least alluded to in other places. But he kind of like goes deep on this Christian nationalism culture, as it were. More often, we see kind of allusions to it, kind of um, the way that Trump did, where you know they'll make references to it. They will cater to certain communities, but they're not necessarily owning it the same way Mastriano did, right? So like Ron DeSantis when he campaigns in you know Pennsylvania or I believe in Ohio in particular he talks about putting on the armor of God as an aspect of campaigning which is you know just not necessarily a term that would have been used by Ron DeSantis two or three four or five years ago but seems to be part of the rhetoric now um, you have Carrie Lake in Arizona who you know she compared the um, you know, allegation, uh, criticism of her and others to that, you know, the, the allegations lobbed against Jesus, right? Um, and in some of these more vague allusions to faith, you could even find, you know, uh, comparisons to past Republican candidates. But, but in this particular midterm election, you know, one, the fact that you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene identifying as a Christian nationalist, um, you know, beginning earlier this year, you know, that is now part of the political discourse. And two, I think equally as interesting is, you know, I wrote a story a couple months ago, asking around 50 congressional Republicans what they thought and whether they had any response to March Taylor Greene's claim that the Republican Party should be the party of Christian nationalism and wanted to see if they have any response, if they wanted to condemn that or reject that or embrace that. And only two responded. And neither of them refer to Christian nationalism by name. Both of those Republicans um, uh, actually just you know, said that they affirmed their belief in the separation of church and state, pushing back more on remarks from Representative Lauren Boebert, who had rejected the separation of church and state in the last few months as well. But all of that's now part of the conversation. Um, so you see inflections of it in all these different races across the country. Um, and you know, Mastriano is the one that we point to uh, often because he wears it on his sleeve. But if you listen to the rhetoric in a lot of states, it's it's coming up repeatedly. Yeah, that is, you know, it's nowhere do we see this in a, in the Reawaken American Roadshow. Um, and, oh, yeah. And, you know, this is like high production value, including baptism, but it's really a political movement on wheels. And you've done a little bit of looking at that, I think. Um, what are some impressions? How does that re relate to the you know the the candidates across the country using this rhetoric and how how do you see how do you see it playing in? Well, I think you know if if you're a Republican or conservative strategist, you see things like the Reawaken America tour as elements of your base, right? These this is an aspect of you could see it as kind of this lineage you know of Trumpism developing. Um, over the course of Trump's tenure in office, and also it, it took on its interesting iterations after he left office, right? And so the um, the Reawaken America tour really kind of seems to be an outgrowth of what was the Stop the Steal movement that then became January 6th, that then became, you know, anti-vaccine sentiment, and, you know, led by... Mm. Um, you know, Mike Flynn in particular, they refer to him as America's general, who, you know, the AP has done a lot of reporting about how, you know, he's kind of 
pushing at a local level these ideas of Christian nationalism, both as part of the Reawaken a Tour, um, Reawaken America Tour, and other um, you know kind of advocacy that he has done. You see that as just a part of the Republican base, right? And I think one thing that gets left out here is that. Um, you know, those kinds of people who are showing up to events. There was a Pew survey a few months back that sliced America into around 10 different political groups. And the farthest right was a group that they referred to as faith and flag conservatives, which Pew researchers told reporters was their attempt to kind of assess this kind of hardline version of Christian nationalism. And while they only make up around 10%, um, 9 to 10% of the U.S. population, which is, you know, roughly the same chunks as these other um, parts of the U.S. population, they make up around a quarter of the Republican Party. And compared to all other political groups, they have the highest level of political activism, you know, second only and then only sometimes to progressives on the far left. And so you put all that together and you see that this group of voters, this group of activated people, the kinds of people that are showing up the Reawaken America tour are likely to make up a disproportionate um, uh, element of the Republican primary voters, or at least a group that punches above its weight. So it leads to people like Mastriano and others being the Republican candidate for these different races, because these are the folks who are showing up in a really big way. Yeah. What's been the response among um, that you've seen among other religious leaders, both among conservative evangelicals who reject this, but also but also more progressive religious leaders from all different backgrounds as well as secular backgrounds, not as animated, but certainly somewhat organized, I would say. Oh, yeah. I mean, push back to Christian nationalism, this kind of modern era of Christian nationalism that kind of um, sprung up around Trump kind of goes back really to his 2016 campaign. I mean, you know, within a couple of years there, by 2018, there was already a Christians Against Christian Nationalism organization and sign on letter. You know, when I was doing coverage of this starting in 2017 and going into 2018, there was no shortage of faith leaders who were rebuking the kind of Christian nationalism they were seeing in the group of evangelical faith leaders that Trump surrounded himself with. Um, the Poor People's Campaign, you know, led by Reverend William Barber, who in addition to be one of the being one of the most prominent um, you know, progressive faith activists is just one of the most prominent progressive activists in general in the country. You know, the Poor People's Campaign has had as a pillar of their belief system that they put on their website opposition to religious and now Christian nationalism for years now, right? So there has been this systemic pushback um, along and along before, you know, January 6th, before the Stop the Steal movement. Since these things have occurred, um, and since, particularly since Christian nationalism became, you know, something that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene would identify themselves with, we've seen this surge of discourse around this topic. And, you know, throughout that time period, um, we've seen a lot of progressive faith leaders and liberal faith leaders push back on it. I will note, by the way, on January 6th, you know, I was in D.C. I wasn't at the Capitol. I was down the street because one of the only in-person um, protests, counter-protests that day against what was, you know, um, the the rally that was going to happen that then led to the insurrection was actually a group of clergy um, that were gathered around a Black Lives Matter sign that had been destroyed by um, members of the group Proud Boys just a few weeks earlier. And uh, that the fact that they were there, the fact that they were part of that demonstration, you know, it speaks to the fact that these fake leaders have been pushing back on you know what they were calling by name at the time as Christian nationalism for a long time. 
I, I want to address something that I, I think you've, you've hinted at, but um, is there any frustration for you at the, with the January 6th uh, commission that there's been no mention of Christian nationalism? Um, you know, when you were so adept at um, identifying it and showing the symbols and showing how it was an impulse, it seems like they probably are nervous about it. I, I don't know. What is your assessment of why that has not been more of a conversation topic? So I think this is a fascinating question. And I should note up front that uh, at least two members of the January 6th committee, um, you know, Jamie Raskin um, and Adam Kinzinger have both separately when they are not on that stage um, at the committee hearings, talked about the role that Christian nationalism played in January 6th. The Adam Kinzinger in particular has both condemned Christian nationalism by name and said and told Russell Moore actually that he didn't think January 6th would have happened the same way without the influence of Christian nationalism. But when they're up on that stage, there has been very little discussion of this. And so I can only speculate, and I know other people have speculated, but I will point out that one of the interesting elements of the, the, that those committing hearings is how it is very clear to a lot of different analysts, they are trying to appeal not just to liberals or progressives, sure. but to a bigger swath of the American public. And you know, lawmakers are often concerned about you know, looking like they're singling out one faith group or one community. Um, and so my, you know, I think some of the, the, the theories I've heard posited um, here in Washington is that, you know, why would you spend your time discussing Christian nationalism um, as a motivator for why people did all these crimes when you can spend your time, you know, saying, hey, look, here are the crimes that were done. Uh -huh. And, you know, we need to just, you know, stick to the, the script of what, you know, convincing the American public that um, this happened and, you know, uh, the, the committee as, a, you know, arguing who is responsible for it. So that's that's my assessment of that um, as to why that is the case. But again, you know, many people, at least two people on that committee have have been open about the fact that they think Christian nationalism played a significant yeah, role. Yeah. I should mention that uh, Representative Raskin also hosted us on the Hill when we did our briefing. So he's clearly there it's, on, it, it's on his, his radar for sure. And I think you're I think it's a political I think they've been very um, calculating in what they what effect they wanted to have and the, and I think you're you're probably absolutely right um it, something that it's just really hard to get our minds around but what role is QAnon playing in the Christian nationalist conversation but also in just kind of motivating what I would just consider just name craziness um like absolute craziness of um you know ridiculous ideas like that have no basis that, you know, you know, we, we, I thought after Pizzagate where someone was convinced that Hillary Clinton was in the basement of a pizza parlor with, you know, with a pedophilia ring and then there's no basement and they show up with a gun. Like it's, it's so absurd, but then there it is. And I'm just wondering like, but this is, you know, a belief. I mean, it's a belief system. I don't know. Break it down for me, because I, I have a really hard, I get a little apoplectic talking about it, but I think it has an outsized influence on the way we're, we're addressing lots of issues right now. For sure. I, I think, you know, the, the QAnon movement, I think there was a time period when people were differentiating it from other elements of what is often described as Trumpism. Um, now, you know, a lot of people, experts I speak with, you know, it's impossible to disentangle it, right? And that includes Christian nationalism. If QAnon and Christian nationalism 
were ever separate things, they're not now. You know, they quite frequently overlap. You know, when I was referring to that period in 2021 in particular, where there was that kind of spike in anti-COVID um, uh, measures and um, anti-vaccine sentiment, those sorts of things. You know, one of the, the events that I covered at that time was a thing called Bards Fest um, out in Missouri. And the speakers there just did not distinguish between conspiracy theories and their um, um, Christian nationalism. They, they often intermingled them. And to the point where it became difficult to discern where one started and the other began. And, you know, there's, I've, I've heard other researchers kind of refer to elements of this as what's called conspirituality, right? This Oh my of, God, that word. <laughs> Stop. That's amazing. Okay. That's um, like, now I'm depressed. Yeah. Um, and I, mean, I think for me, there was this, there was this symbolic moment on January 6th, where you had Jacob Chansley, the self-appointed QAnon shaman, shaman yeah. or Q shaman, whose own religious beliefs are actually very complex. You know, he had Norse um, symbols tattooed on his body. He often appeals to multiple different faith leaders at once. But when, you know, insurrectionists stormed into the Senate that day, there's footage of the fact that Jacob Chansley then led them in a prayer. And, you know, multiple people, and he was, when Jacob was leading that prayer, he was appealing specifically to Jesus Christ. And it had, you know, many overtones of Christian nationalism. And you had people in that room who were raising their hands in prayer. And, you know, I, I wrote a piece, you know, a few months after January 6th, looking at some of the people who were in that room, one of, two of whom are just more rank and file evangelicals who kind of spoke about how that prayer was important to them later and how they, one of them said that that was like the, uh, something akin to, uh, that that was a seminal um, uh, image of the movement for him. And so the fact that the Q shaman was leading these, you know, more rank and file evangelicals in this prayer that kind of alluded to Christian nationalism, you know, I think that says a lot about how these things have kind of come together. And, and things like yeah. the Reawaken America tour are kind of a testament to that, to yeah. how like, you know, all the conspiracy theories and, um, you know, pushback against you know, all these 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 erroneous claims about the 2020 election and appealing to the Christian, this idea of a Christian nation will all happen in the same sentences. Sometimes. Yeah, nothing like a shaman leading evangelicals in prayer to make your mind spin a little bit. Um, I want to talk about the disturbing anti-Semitism um, that we are seeing, you know, high profile people like um, Kanye West and 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 Donald Trump. But but also, I do feel like there is like inherent, frankly, inherent in Christian nationalism is a um, is a belief that uh, people of other faith traditions are second, are have a secondary status in the country. They can be tolerated, but they have a secondary status. And I just feel I feel for um, my Jewish uh, family members, friends, I just feel like this feels like a, an intimidating time because of the rhetoric that has become that is given permit to people, um, permission to be terrible, and uh, and I I don't know I I'm wondering if if that's something I know that uh, religion news service is covering it, but I'm just wondering how you're reacting to what you're seeing. Yeah, you know I think. One of the, I wrote this story last year about um, how, you know, in the aftermath of January 6th and the lead up to it, Christian nationalism particularly became this um, clarion call for, you know, kind of extremist groups. And I kind of talked to 
extremist experts who are kind of just, you know, we're, we're watching a lot of these online forums and a lot of these vo prominent voices and these right wing extremist spaces. And they were really unsettled because not only were they seeing kind of like this spike in Christian nationalism in, in these extremist spaces where they would take that in a lot of different directions, right? You know, hardcore versions of patriarchy, um, obviously lots of forms of racism. And as you mentioned, the KKK is a classic example of Christian nationalism in an extremist um, form that also was virulently anti-Semitic, right? Um, but at the same time, we saw people like I mentioned Andrew Torba at Gab, you know, he has, you know, shared repeatedly anti-Semitic messages and some of these extremism experts i spoke with pointed out that in some of these forums they started seeing um you know kind of older versions of uh of, of kind of for lack of a better term you know hardcore right-wing uh, neo-nazi theology that started re-emerging that was being shared what's called christian identity with you know capital c capital i that sort of theology started getting popular in some of these forums and um, and 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 those those voices were growing louder. I think it's important to note that extremists started identifying as Christian nationalist. Um, and then it was like a, a year to a few months later that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene started identifying as Christian nationalists. So they're clearly, you know, making this their influence heard across these chasms at some point. And so very early on, folks were expressing a deep concern for um, not just you know um, references to anti-Semitic. Uh, you know, arguments and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, which were kind of embedded in a lot of QAnon rhetoric, but really virulently old school, hateful um, versions of anti-Semitism re-emerging in some of these circles that, you know, potentially as you widen the net of people who might find this permissible, start being picked up in more mainstream political spaces. So that was the concern that extremism experts were telling me over a year ago. Yeah. Jack Jenkins is an award-winning national reporter at Religion News Service and author of a compelling book titled American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Jack, thank you for being with us again on State of Belief Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We've covered a lot of ground and it's challenging to talk about the threats to our democracy and religious freedom while keeping hope and resilience. Fortunately, I think we found just the right voices to help us do that in this critical moment. These are the stories we need to keep hearing, and that's a key reason why State of Belief is here. We've covered a lot of ground today, and it can be challenging to talk about the current threats to our democracy and religious freedom while maintaining hope and resilience. But talking to people like this, doing important work on the ground, really helps. And these are the stories we need to keep on hearing. And that's a key reason why State of Belief is on the air. I hope you'll consider helping us to amplify the voices doing this critical work by making a financial contribution to keep this program going strong. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. You can be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations, both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. 
and join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief, that's at State of Belief, and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.